All right, glad you're all here. What about you? I feel a little sluggish today. Been eating way too much food. Lots of beef, lots of turkey, lots of stuffing, just carbs and protein. Just feel like a bottomless pit or a garbage disposal or anything. You probably feel the same. So let's liven each other up with uh, with some good old uh, good old fashioned Bible teaching. <laughs> but let's pray for God to help us. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for your love and faithfulness to us. Thank you that we can be here um, enjoying the uh, the onset of winter and uh, cold weather and a reminder of it as the seasons change. You are a faithful God who loves and cares for us. So please uh, give us wisdom, give us knowledge and discernment in your word this morning that we may draw our hearts to you all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, without further ado, let's open our Bibles to the book of Daniel, and we'll just try to jump right in because what we are exploring is part of a, of a much larger passage dealing with uh, the first of many visions that are given in the book of Daniel. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with Nebuchadnezzar's dream that for some reason he can't, not, he can't remember. He can't call it to mind, and it's not really clear if he is really forgetting it, or if he is pretending to forget it because he is so fed up with these wise men and astrologers and conjurers. But whatever the case, King Nebuchadnezzar is used as a catalyst for God to reveal his will, not just in a a specific isolated way, but in a way that really uh, underscores the entire narrative of God's salvific plan through Jesus Christ. And of course, that's going to be the next week or so where we're really going to dive into that. But for now, Let's just try to lay the context. So, if you're not there already, Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> and of course, beginning in verse 1, we, uh, we see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He forgets it, and then of course, he threatens death to all of his wise men. So, we, we kind of ended off, if you want to call it a biblical cliffhanger, uh, last Lord's Day, where there is imminent death threatened. We find that King Nebuchadnezzar, probably a young king at this point in his life, is quite the hothead. He is prone to getting very angry, so much to the point that his face is contorted. And we kind of wonder, like, what are you, 10? Can you, can you act like a mature adult? Can you act like a king and be patient? But in this case, we find that Nebuchadnezzar is the perfect cynic. He is no longer patient with all of his wise men. And because they cannot reveal both the dream and its meaning. He issues a decree, as we saw last time, that all of them be put to death. And the cliffhanger really came in verse 11. You want to draw your attention there. Verse 11 says, Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. This is the Chal- These are the Chaldeans, the wise men speaking, and they're despairing over this decree that has been made. That which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And so there we have the doom on them. And we move very quickly through verses 12 and 13 if you want to keep following along. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious just by this answer, or the lack of one, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends, to kill them. So, of course, at this point, Daniel is among the wise men of Babylon. 
whether this is in the middle of the training or after training, we don't know exactly, but we know that this is very early in Daniel's service to King Nebuchadnezzar because it does indicate that this is during the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So very early time, and of course he's already getting dreams, and these dreams are so disturbing that he demands an answer. You know, it's one thing to have a random dream where you're just thinking about something all the time, but a dream in the form of a vision where the Lord is clearly trying to get something across to you, this is, a, this is a dream that robs him of sleep. It's a dream that puts him in such a situation where even as a pagan king, he really desires to know the answer and he will not find any kind of rest until he does. So that brings us really to the second chunk of this passage, and that is verses 14 through 30. And of course, the sermon title is, There is a God in Heaven. It's one of the challenges of preaching through narrative, is isolating the main point. And I think that in reading this text again and again, this is the main message, and it comes from the lips of Daniel. And he tells King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. And of course, those latter days meaning the days leading up to the establishment of Christ's kingdom. The establishment of it and then of course, its inevitable growth and dominion. So, that is what I believe to be uh, the main thrust of this passage. And you can see how it pairs nicely with with uh, last week's sermon theme, where the Chaldeans say in verse 11, there is no one else. And of course, their despair as those who do not know God is justified. Because they would look through their entire pantheon and their entire, uh, from top to bottom, all of the intelligentsia, all of the conjurers, all of the sorcerers, all of the astrologers, all of the wise men, and they would not be able to find anyone who can tell King Nebuchadnezzar the dream, nor can they tell him the interpretation. And so they are very right to say this. But there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods. And their reasoning is this. Their dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And one of the things we try to make clear is that the God of Israel is a God who makes his dwelling with flesh. Yes, we understand God is in, in heaven, of course, because Daniel has just said that. But this God in heaven has made creation, men specifically, in such a way that he desires to draw near and fellowship with them. And this is something that actually, leading all the way up to the exile, that highlights the failure of Israel. Because what did God design to do? This God who is in heaven, this true God. We read in Deuteronomy 4, 5-7, through 7, we see this, See, I have taught you statutes and judgment, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. That is the promised land. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, okay, this is the witness of Israel, God's people, to the Gentile nations. The Gentiles were supposed to look upon Israel and come to a conclusion. What do we say about this people who were once enslaved? They are to say this. Surely, this, na this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? And of course, we understand that 
Part of understanding the attributes of God is that he is transcendent. He is above us. He is beyond us. He is outside of us. And yet, being the God that he is, he is able to draw near to us. And in all of his glory and holiness and power and magnificence, he can draw near to us and we live. That's the marvel. That's what we call grace. God wants to draw near to us, but he has to draw near to us on his terms so that we don't die. And of course, God accomplished this in the Old Testament via the sacrificial system and the ministry of the high priest. Today, we enjoy that through the ministry of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has poured out his wrath upon his son so that the penalty of our sin is paid. Therefore, by faith, all because of grace, we can draw near to God, but we draw near on his terms. And of course, our mission, our purpose is is no different. In fact, I would say it's an exalted one because this is dealing with a worldwide reality. But it's the same with us as it was with Israel. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, the pagans, all around us should be able to come to that conclusion. This great nation, that is the church, the household of God is a wise and understanding people for what great nation is there if it has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call Him. And then listen to this. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 4. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? See, we should, we, the pagan, if they were thinking straight, should be able to look at the law of Christ, which of course provides the entire framework of Christian obedience, and say, wow, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. But instead, this demonstrates the depravity of the unbelieving. But they look at the law of Christ and instead of seeing grace, instead of seeing provision, instead of seeing a, a, an easy burden and a light yoke, they say, oh, that's oppressive. That's enslavement. And that's why we have the gospel, because it is the gospel that grants an unbeliever understanding so that they see, ah, I understand it now. This is a people whose God draws near to them. And this God is good. And their laws are good. And we find that looking in Israel's history, they failed magnificently to demonstrate either of those things, that God drew near to them and that his judgments and statutes were righteous. Because Israel was so disobedient and so idolatrous, they failed to be a messenger of that wonderful truth that God draws near his people. And so that is the truth that in exile, uh, Daniel is trying to get across to King Nebuchadnezzar, and I would say eventually all of Babylon. There is a God in heaven who draws near to his people. There is a God in heaven who dwells with mortal flesh. But there is something we have to understand about the fact that God is in heaven. It says a lot of things about God. It's not just to say that God is so distant from us that we can have nothing to do with him. It's not to say that God is wholly ethereal and that we can just not we, we, we can't really understand who he is. Absolutely, through his word, we can understand who he is. But there, when, when Daniel says that God is in heaven, I think we have to search our scriptures because I think that's what Daniel is doing. I don't think Daniel is biblically illiterate. He knows exactly what he's talking about. So let's explore a few of these scriptures so we can understand Daniel's point because there are many things he could have said about God, but he said there is a God in heaven. And that's one of the most basic things we learn as Christians, and yet we don't want that knowledge of God being in, in heaven to become a stagnant, stagnant truth. Remember, 
Truth for the Christian is meant to be life-transforming. It's not just knowledge that we accumulate so they become dusty, unused books in the library of the mind. The fact that God is in heaven should have a very profound application for the Christian church. So Mark, Psalm 115, verse 3, for starters. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. So the first thing we've understood here is that when God is in heaven, when we say that God is in heaven, it's like He's looking down on earth and, we, and He does whatever He wants. He has unilateral sovereign power that He can, that he can exact on His creation. And no one, the Scripture says, can look back and say, what have you done? We have no right to say that. Although many of us are really challenged by that reality. We question God all the time. We think that God does something and He must be crazy or He must be on break or something. God, did you see what just happened? But He does whatever He pleases. And then, and then the psalmist starts describing idols. So here's the second thing we know about God being in heaven. One, He is over all. Okay. He is sovereign. The other thing is, is that this psalm means to separate God and basically establish a difference, a distinction between Yahweh, the true and living God, and of course, idols. The true and living God is not a God that is fashioned by man's hands. So he says of these idols, they're the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot, or they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. If you trust in a dead idol, you will end up like your idol. That is dead, lifeless, unresponsive. Here's another verse that caps that off from Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. So, ah, when He says that God, there is a God in heaven, He is saying that, yes, God sits on His throne, right? It's a, it's a, it's a demonstration, symbol of His authority. His throne is in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. That's what, that's, there, so there's a point that we can draw from Daniel when he says there is a God in heaven and He is distinct from these false gods that are run amok in Babylon. And so by this, he is demonstrating the utter spiritual bankruptcy of all of his counselors, all of the astrologers, all of the magicians, all of the, all of the sorcerers, all of the Chaldeans. The intelligentsia, their combined knowledge is nothing before the throne of God and his power and his all-knowing nature. So he's putting them to shame. And of course, this, he's saying this facing the threat of death but he is not afraid. 1 Kings 8.30, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when we pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. So when we hear that God is in heaven, we are being instructed, okay, he is there, so pray to him. Praise him. Ask him for things. Ask him to reveal himself. Here's another one. I think this is telling. Matthew 6.9 from the words of our Lord. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's that distinction between 
heaven and earth. And, the, and, and I bring this up to say that the whole point of Nebuchadnezzar's vision that we will, that, that we're going to find out is that God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a vision which communicates to us that the Father is going to answer this prayer. Because what happens? A mountain is, a, a stone is cut out without hands, becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth, subdues all kingdoms. And among the many other things that that mountain represents, it represents God's will through the, through the, through the rule of Jesus Christ being done on earth as it is in heaven. Because where the king reigns, his will will be done. Right? That's the goal of the gospel. Not just saving individual souls. The goal of the gospel is to make heaven and earth one once again. The entire earth. And of course, the Father is not going to say no to His Son's prayer request. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, go, we, we say all this to, to, to say, okay, well, to ask, how does this, how does this shape our understanding of Daniel's situation? And further, how do we apply it in a pagan culture? Right? We, depending on, we've kind of said this before, depending on where we live, at a given time, in a given place, there will be varying degrees of paganism. Right? And we kind of live in such a time, right, 2,000 years displaced from the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that the gospel has done an amazing work. Started in Jerusalem, and now, of course, here we are preaching the word of God in Colorado Springs, the Christian Mecca, right? So we're in a pretty good place. We have seen the gospel flourish even though the powers of sin and hell do all they can to undermine that work. The gospel will advance. And will advance in seemingly unshakable odds. Ridiculous odds. And yet, the Lord will prevail and He will prevail through His people. And Daniel is such a man. So that brings us... I believe that brings us to... Our actual text. So that's my that is my uh, that is my introduction. So what are the things what are the things that we want to see um, in in the life of Daniel, and how do they apply to us? Okay. So what is the initial truth? What is the most basic truth in this text? Is that there is a God in heaven? Yeah, there are probably a thousand different immediate applications we can find, but ones pertaining to this text I think speak well to us today. And the first the first is this. <clears throat> And this is kind of a colloquial way of describing this, but knowing that there is a God in heaven gives us a cool head in the face of madness. You think of uh, that that time, and I think I think it was the Return of the King when Gandalf the White enters into the hall of the kings where Denethor is, and what does he say? Stir this madness, right? Denethor is about to light himself and his son on fire. What is going on? And we have the same situation going on in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is seeing red and he is ready to kill everybody. He became, he becomes indignant. There's no answer. He says, you guys are out of time. And so this decree goes forth that the wise men should be slain. So we come to verse 14. Then Daniel, note the patterns here. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch. So, so Daniel didn't just spit out words. Right? We find in this discretion and discernment a cool head. Daniel, as a man of God, is able to think the situation through. He does not react in fear. He does not react haphazardly. He reacts as one who knows God, who walks with Him, and is confident in His God. And so he says, 
with discernment and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard. By the way, interesting note, this is written in Aramaic. Arioch actually means lion. So this really is the first episode of Daniel in the lion's den. Arioch the lion, the captain, has come to slay him. In verse 15, he says to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? See, what is this madness? Why in a hurry? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter, and that, of course, is the matter described from verse 1 of chapter 2 all the way up to the present, uh, the present situation. Okay, so that's the first thing. That is what I want to see in us. No matter where we are in culture, no matter how we are interacting with the given culture, that, that is, I think that is a very, that, that is a very encouraging application. Right? And you think about this too, when the entire world, when the entire pagan culture around you is utterly freaking out, they're at their wits end, there is a sense, a, a madness in our society that is alienated from Christ, that does not know God, that cannot draw, draw near to Him. That is a, that is a difference, right? We read that description in the book of First Peter chapter 3. Have an answer. Be prepared. Right? There is a, there is a coolness of the head that knows how to respond, that is prepared, who can give an answer for the reason for the hope that is within you. That is what Daniel is doing right now. This is not, this is not a naive, ill, ill or uninformed answer that he gives. It's an answer given by a man who knows God and who knows God is with him. And so rather than freaking out like the rest of the Babylonian wise men, he can say, stop this madness. There is a God in heaven, and what do we know? God reveals Himself through His Word, and that Word brings order to a situation. It brings understanding, brings assurance, brings confidence. And that is something that each and every Christian needs to be prepared for. That time when you may be, literally or metaphorically, on the chopping block. What is your answer going to be? Is it going to be, there is a God in heaven? There is a God in heaven. That's our answer. That's the first thing. The second thing, of course, follows from this, is the courage to be able to stand for the truth. Now, we kind of see this laced through this passage. We see, we see Daniel standing courageously in the face of, 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 of impending death, and he's able to answer Arioch. And then we see it uh, down later on in the text where Daniel is able to address the king, to be confident and say, okay, there, we are going to discover the truth of this matter. The Lord has revealed to me your dream and the meaning of it. That is a courage known only to the Christian. We actually have a reason to be courageous because God has made known the truth to us as His people. And so, in verse 16, when it says that Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king, the difference here is that Daniel is not stalling like we see earlier on in this passage of what the wise men are doing. They are stalling, right? They're trying to buy time, hoping that maybe King Nebuchadnezzar will forget his dream or that he'll cool off a little bit, he'll stop being angry. Daniel does no such thing. He's basically giving the king a guarantee. But all he asks is, I need, I'm going to guarantee an answer, but I am going to go and get it from God. I am not going to be like an astrologer. I'm not going to look to the stars. I'm not going to look to my own parlor tricks. I'm not, I'm not going to be like the conjurers or the magicians. I'm not going to be an astrologer. Look to the stars for my answer. I'm not going to look for human wisdom like the Chaldeans. I am going to go to God, the source, 
the repository of all wisdom and knowledge, which is what we should be doing as Christians. So Daniel gives us an amazing example in this passage. So let's read on. What does he do? He stands for the truth, and then, of course, he goes to pray. Okay, so that's the third thing. It is the confidence, knowing that God, there is a God in heaven, gives us confidence to seek the Lord in prayer. And that is hardly our initial reaction, is it not, to most of, the life's, most of life's troubles. We replace confidence with another C. We call it complaining. Most of us are given to complaining. Something bad happens and all we want to do is whine and moan and in some roundabout way accuse God that He really doesn't know what He's doing and that you know better. Most of us, if not all of us, at some point in our life are guilty of that. I know I struggle with that. Where our first reaction is, oh, come on, Lord. There, there's a better way. Clearly, I had this mapped out in my head. I had it all planned. This is the way we should go. And suddenly, the Lord takes your plans and He throws them on the ground. And it shatters to pieces. Sometimes our own madness is what must be stopped. And the Lord has a way of doing that for us, not just to us. And so Daniel prays. And I think this is a very important part of our passage where this secret is revealed to Daniel. We see that in verse 17. Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. And we've remarked that when it says this name, it's referencing us to the fact that these men, even though they're in a thoroughly pagan culture, are still thoroughly Israelites. They are true Jews. They are acting like God has drawn near to them. Verse 18, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Now, as we've mentioned many times before, compassion is the word in the Old Testament that mostly that is used to describe God the most. He is compassionate to us. He meets our need. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Sound familiar? Right from Hebrews. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So they're going to request compassion from God so that they may not die from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed. The strong word wiped out with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They don't want to go down with them. More on that later. So the secret is revealed. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So not merely a dream, but a special vision where God revealed Himself to Daniel in such a way for him to communicate to the king. It's amazing. You should do it. It'd be an interesting side study, just by the way. How many, how many things, how many key things in the history of the people of God occur at night, occur in the middle of the night? So really interesting study. So the fact that it says in the night or a night vision should, should make us kind of perk up. Oh, something really insane, something really significant and wonderful is going to happen. Well, it seems like this prayer was answered right away. And, and, and again, quick application, guys. No matter how short a time you have, you're never in so much of a hurry that you can't throw up a little prayer. You're never in so much of a hurry between the announcement of the situation and its implications that you can't throw up a quick prayer to God to commit the situation to His care, to ask Him for compassion and favor. Because God will deliver that. He'll deliver what you need. And we can be confident in that. So we have a pretty quick answer. And of course, this harkens back to the book of Numbers 12.6. He said, Hear now my words, that there is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him 
in a dream. This establishes that Daniel is a true prophet. Right? And so what he has to say from here on is truly the Word of God. And so here we have the confidence that Daniel has to seek the Lord in prayer, knowing that God will reveal Himself as verse 19 says. The mystery was revealed. It was hidden, and now it is unpacked and made clear. And that is why Daniel can seek the Lord in prayer with great confidence. And so, look at this response. His response is one of thanksgiving. Should be common, a common response to the Lord answering our prayer. To go, with him, go to Him with great expectation that He will answer. And so look at the, look at the pattern here. kind of want to break this down. When we thank God, when we praise Him, there are certain things that we ascribe to Him. There are certain truths that we rehearse. And if nothing else, it is a, it is a fresh reminder where we call to our own minds who God is. And so here is what Daniel says. Let the name of God, that is Yahweh, right? Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God, full of loving kindness to Israel. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. So that's the first thing. I know it's hard for us to grasp because we're so busy, especially during July, singing God bless America, right? But he says, how about America bless God? Let God be blessed forever and ever, eternally, right? That as God's kingdom gradually grows and, 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 and subdues all of the earth, that His name will be the one that is eternally blessed. We have to understand that. There is, there is no expiration date in, on blessing the name of God. What's the next thing? For wisdom and power belong to Him. Here is why we bless Him eternally. For wisdom and power belong to Him. So God knows all things and knows how to apply that knowledge perfectly. And all power. See, most of us can say, oh, well, there's a very wise man. But many wise men have no power. And of course, many powerful men do not have wisdom. But God has all wisdom and all power. They are His. And so He is blessed for that. God gives Daniel, of course, this wisdom to know His will and to know the mystery that He gave to Nebuchadnezzar in a vision. Not only this, verse 21, it is He who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings and gives Wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So this really highlights God's sovereignty over history, over governments, over knowledge itself. And I think that's, I think that's the bright spot in this. In spite of how corrupt our government may be, it all fits in with a grand plan of God's sovereign wisdom and knowledge. And I know sometimes for us it's hard to take any comfort in that. But in the big picture, God has His ways and they are above our understanding. And sometimes I think that if God really sat down and explained it to us, detail by detail, we may not believe Him. But we do have this. We do have this consolation is that God is in charge. And He can remove kings and He can establish kings. And we're going to see that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, will we not? He will remove Nebuchadnezzar for a while and then He will restore him. He will remove King Belshazzar, and then he will bring in another empire headed initially by King Cyrus. So God knows what he's doing, and he is true to his word. Listen to some of these important passages. 
First Chronicles 29.11. You've heard Jeremiah 29.11. Here's First Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. See, so in all of the, this setting up of kings and establishment of kings and removal of kings, God is over all of them. He's the one pulling the strings. In Job 12.16, it says He loosens the bond of kings and binds their loins with the girdle. See, God is really in charge. Consider 1 Samuel 2.7-8. This part of a prayer. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He set the world on them. Now, I think this is something that we should take notice of. Daniel is part of this group of the wise men in Babylon. Think about what he's doing, and then as opposed to what a conjurer is doing. When we think of someone who conjures something, we think of someone who grabs something out of thin air. right? Someone who makes something up. Daniel isn't making any of this up. He is, being, he is able to recite the truth that he knows from God's Word, from how God has revealed Himself. And on this, he can give God praise. And so, he gives, and so God gives wisdom and knowledge and understanding to Daniel. It's interesting because this sort of follows the same path that Joseph follows in the book of Genesis. When Joseph answers Pharaoh saying, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And later on in this text, Daniel says the same thing, right? If we look down there, let's see what verse it is. He says in verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners, are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. And then he says in verse 30, As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. Okay, so automatically, we'll talk more about that later. But this Daniel understands, as Joseph did, that this is I'm not conjuring this up. I'm not making this up. God is giving it to me. And so moving on in this, what else? how else does God reveal Himself? He says, verse 22, it is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. So this simply highlights God's omniscience. That Daniel can go confident to God in prayer because he knows that God knows everything. He knows what is on our lips before we utter those things. And sometimes that may freak us out. That may make us a little uneasy that God knows my heart. He knows my motives. And yet, even as His people, we are told to go before Him and to pray to Him and to cry out to Him. We should be confident. We should take joy in the fact that God knows everything. Everything about us. Every thought, every deed, every intention. Even the deepest recesses of our hearts. The things that men cannot see, but God sees it. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. Like, Profound things that are deep, un unintelligible. This word is used to describe the depths of Sheol, things that are just simply not known. 
but he knows what is in the darkness. It may be obscured to us. There's lots of things I'm sure we wish we knew, and we do not. But God knows. He knows what is in the darkness. And of course, the light dwells with him. It is by the light that we are even able to see God, but also it is that light by which we see everything else that he intends for us to see. Remember, we learned from 1 John that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And he knows all things. And we can go to him with that kind of confidence. What else? Verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. We don't want to gloss over this too much, but what is, what is he declaring about God? What is he thanking God for? And I think this is going to be really big in our own lives. He is talking about God's faithfulness. And I think that's proven just by the fact that he says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. When you call up, when, when you recall the God of your fathers, you are going back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So notice here that Daniel is not appealing to his ability to obey God. He is not appealing to God for his ability to keep the law. When you call to mind God's faithfulness, you are shining the light on his grace and mercy. That is where our appeal is, not in our ability to obey God but in Christ's ability to obey God. And to have that righteousness imputed to our account so that we can stand before God today blameless in Christ. But that all harkens back to a very important attribute of God. And that is His faithfulness. And that is a very difficult thing to recall to mind. If you were in exile, if you were in a pagan society and your back was against the wall, recalling God's faithfulness to mind may not be the first thing. And yet, it is true for Daniel who now stands in the light and grace of answered prayer. So we can say to you, O God of my fathers, oh yes, I remember you were faithful. I remember the promise you gave to Abraham. And I remember that you will not falter in keeping this promise. Because we know that the promise ultimately has not been fulfilled because Christ has not at this point come yet. But he thinks about God's faithfulness and God's unilateral promise to Abraham and to uphold that promise by his own power regardless of how much his people screw up God will not fail and so of course in this situation where God has answered the prayer Daniel is already confident that God will not fail to keep his promises and he says this for you have given me wisdom and power oh first it was God who had wisdom and power and now he has enumerated this to Daniel, now I have wisdom, now I have knowledge, now I have insight into your revealed will, and I have the strength to persevere and to make this dream known to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says, even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So there, that seals the deal. He is praised now for his kindness. God has provided as one of our dear sisters says in this church, Jehovah has gyred. For sure, the Lord has provided by making known the matter of the king to Daniel. And yet it still seems that the king is impatient. Where are we now? I think we are in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, or went, yeah, went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. 
Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. So here is the fourth thing. And I think often this, the implications of this one verse can kind of uh, go unnoticed. But I believe that connected intimately to the fact that there is a God in heaven, even in the face of this kind of danger, that that gives us all the reason that we have to have compassion, that compassion to speak for others. The compassion to speak for others. What did Daniel go and ask God for? Earlier on in this text, he asked him for compassion to meet a need. And so I believe that Daniel has received that and now he is going to extend that to the rest of the Babylonian wise men because in verse 18, it says that so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. See, Daniel can escape this with his friends because he was the one who, who, who prayed and revealed the dream and its meaning to the king. I mean, you think about it. This is Daniel's opportune time. If Daniel were an opportunist, if he really wanted that great promotion that they were all gunning for, now is the time. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, one could imagine. I have delivered, I alone have delivered this dream and its meaning to you. I alone have been given wisdom and power from on high. Oh yes, king. You don't need the rest of these wise men, these astrologers, these conjurers, these Chaldeans. Who are they? Just, just, just get rid of them. You don't need them. You only need me and maybe my three friends here. And you know what? He, he was probably exactly right. The king didn't need these wise men. He needed to hear the word of God desperately. This would have been Daniel's opportunity to have them all killed, or at least to try to have them killed. But what's the first thing he says? Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Have compassion. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation of the king. Are we willing to put ourselves on the line for pagans? Sometimes, sometimes, in our darker days, friends, we, we hesitate to even go to bat for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We refuse to stand up for other members of the body of Christ. It's, it's pathetic. It's tragic. But sometimes there is hesitation where we find ourselves in seasons where we are not so compassionate, where we're always unjustly judging others, where we are looking to see the worst in them, where we have maybe even convinced ourselves that it's so toxic in this church or that we're so ungodly or so immature Forget these people. We don't need them. We don't need each other. And so all we're doing is looking for ways to accuse each other. It's true, right? Forget how we treat the pagans. Sometimes we set a terrible example as to how we treat one another. And even to the pagan, oh Lord, remove this person. Oh Lord, smite this governor. Oh Lord, strike down this politician. And of course, yes, it makes sense that we want, we want God's justice to be expressed. We want Him so badly to apply this verse of removing kings, people who think they're kings. Right? I get it. We're sick of it. We're sick of the injustice. We're sick of murdering babies. We're sick of taxes. We're sick of unbiblical, unjust laws. We're tired of it all. But honestly, it brings up the question, as much as we desire God's justice, 
do we ever stop and ask with a cool head, Oh Lord, have compassion on these wicked people. Oh Lord, I know their cup is filled to the brim and they just hate you so much. They hate your son. They hate the gospel. They hate everything about you. But where, but please have compassion on them. Have compassion on our wicked president. Have compassion on our wicked judges. Oh Lord, not yet. Please. Here's the thing, right? We as Christians are to be an aroma of life leading to life. Our first inclination should not be, oh Lord, kill them all. Oh Lord, please. Time. Give them time to repent. Right, we say this again and again. If the Lord saves a wicked man, God's justice on them has been accomplished because Christ paid for their sin. I know it's one of the hardest things for a Christian to endure today is to sit there and have compassion upon those who hate you and who hate most of all the gods you serve. And yet, here we see Daniel step in and say, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon where he could have done completely the opposite and taken an opportunity to exalt himself and to be promoted to just scream through the ranks of the Babylonian intelligentsia. Right? We know, Daniel knows, the king doesn't need these people. We may say, oh, we don't need pagans in our society. Well, the fact is that God doesn't need any of us. But He desires us. He loves us. He draws near to us. And so we plead for God to be compassionate in the hopes, trusting His good, sovereign, saving will, that He will choose to draw near to these people. Because if He does, those pagans aren't pagans anymore. I think that's the hope. And I think that I really believe that is the heart of Daniel. Remember, it's wrapped up in His name. God is judge. And He will reserve that choice. He will not take opportunity to see others destroyed. And bear in mind, these are men, the types of men who decades from this point will have Daniel thrown to the lion once again for praying to this God. It's, just, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and yet, that is the compassion of Daniel. So let's move on. Where are we? Verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I love this. this is so funny. <laughs> Arioch taking credit. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. I don't know why he says this. Perhaps to say, hey, this is not one of your typical Babylonian soothsayers. This is a different dude from a different stock. He's among the exiles. But look what I have found, O king. He can make the interpretation known to you. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his, uh, of course, given, given adopted name, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, and of course Daniel's honest here, he says, neither wise men, conjurers, and magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Right? Once again, Daniel's opportunity to say, Oh, king, but I know, I know, I have special knowledge that no one else has. But he says this, and this comes, of course, to the crux of our passage today, the main point, the main truth. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. So this God in heaven who desires to draw near to men is going to make known that exact truth as Daniel lays it out in the next passage. What will take place in the latter days? What a privilege. God is making known to you, O king, his saving plan for the entire world. The rise and fall of kings, and then of course the rise of a, of a particular king whose power and, and dominion and kingdom will never fail, will never fall, will never end. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. Listen to Jeremiah 10.7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and all in their kingdoms, there is none like you. That is what we are proclaiming when we say there is a God in heaven. He is in heaven, but there is none like Him. There is no one else. The main point of the previous passage. Listen to Amos 4.13. For behold, He who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is His name. That is the God that is going to be revealed. And I think that's the last point we see. Now that we know that has been revealed to us, and that is our message, that there is a God in heaven, it is, it is this, to have the character to give God all the credit. When the temptation is so great to glorify ourselves, we immediately point people to the God in heaven. And today we point people to the God in heaven who took on human flesh, came to earth, and died for the sins of His enemies. That's good news. That's the God we proclaim. That is the mystery of the ages. That is the mystery that Daniel is about to, at least in seed form, begin to unpack. And he gives comfort to King Nebuchadnezzar. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, again, echoing Joseph, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. <laughs> Here we go. Here's the lesson. You, you're, this is going to blow you away. You are not special. We've been, many of us have been told that our entire life. You are special. Bear with me. I understand the context here. God did not choose you to be the mouthpiece of His grace because of something inherent to you. Because you were just so precious. Because you were just so good. Because you had all these gifts. God chose you on behalf of His own glory. On behalf of the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. You can claim nothing other than you know who this God in heaven is and that He makes known those mysteries. It is true. Paul says to the one who boasts, let him boast in who? Let him boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. As much as that temptation is pretty much constantly, constantly trying to bubble to the surface to give ourselves credit. But take note from what happened to King Herod. Right? He went out and spoke in his regal attire. 
in the book of Acts. And the crowd says, these are the words of a God and not a man. And what happened? He was eaten by worms and died. Don't get eaten by worms and die because you failed to give God the credit. But that is, that is a great gift of the Gospel is that it transforms us to such a degree that we take on a completely new character. A character, a desire, a will which says God must have the glory, God must have the credit. It is not I, but through Christ in me. It has not been to revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Think of the application here. Why does God give us the wisdom, right? Why does, why does he give us wisdom? Why does he give us knowledge? Why does he give us understanding? All of these things are found in Christ, right? He gives us all of these things to make his saving purposes known so that His name will be glorified. And so that as the Gospel continues to do its work, all we will see is the mountain. The mountain that covers the whole earth. All we see is Jesus in His kingdom, in His majestic glory. We do the same thing that Daniel does. In declaring the dream and its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, he declares... The only thing that matters. And we do the same thing. We declare the Word of God. We declare the only thing that matters. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious kingdom and His glorious saving gospel. So we'll get to the King's dream next time. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your, your uh, goodness to us for our time in Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, it would do its work as we explore um, this important episode from the life of Daniel. And of course, probably some things were I forgot to say today, but I trust, Lord, that You will um, you will fill those gaps. You will be all in all. You will make Your Word clear to Your beloved people this morning. Pray, God, that You would be with us to give us that confidence, Lord, that, that You are a God in heaven who has made Himself known to us that we could have that confidence, Lord. And as much as we, as much as we face the daily challenges, and many of those challenges are not impending death, there is no soldier coming to our door ready to kill us. Hope that's not lost on us. But Lord, we do find ourselves in the midst of a culture of death that does not know life, that does not know light, that is not repented of their sins and believed so that You may draw near to them, Lord. I pray that um, we would have the compassion, the patience to speak forth Your Word of grace, trusting in You for the result, not by power nor by might, but by Your Spirit. You gives us everything we need to make the Gospel known and to make it clear. Lord, help us to be like Daniel, in all these ways, Lord, because You provide to us in great measure what You provided to Him. And with that, God, help us to be faithful stewards of Your kingdom as we proclaim the Gospel together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.